Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are in between series with Jim Jordan, and so here today we have a topical sermon from him on the gospel as the funniest event in history. We hope that this sermon is an encouragement to you, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan preaching on the Gospels and the cross of Christ. Respond with, Amen! Amen? Amen! Okay, now let's get that right. If I come back here again, I don't ever want to hear any wimpy amens. We need to say it loud enough for the angels to hear it. And assuming that they're not all in here, we want to be like that. Amen? Good. Now, tonight, I'm going to do something that I hope doesn't offend anyone, because I'm going to talk to you about the funniest passage in the entire Bible, which is the one that was read earlier. We're going to be talking about the divine comedy, and it's John that presents us with the funniest story in the Bible, which is the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and I doubt if you've ever heard it said that way. But I want to remind you of what the second psalm says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth have taken their stand. The rulers have conspired together against Yahweh and against his anointed Messiah, saying, let's break their bands asunder and cast their chains away from us. Well, he that sits in the heavens laughs. Yahweh scoffs at them. Listen, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. God laughs at what people try to do. Now, there are two perspectives, two equally valid perspectives on the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of them is that Jesus humbled himself to come into the world to be born in a body that was afflicted by the curse. Our body that Adam has placed under the curse. And after 30 years of enduring, not having a home, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but Jesus doesn't have any place to lay his head. Hungry in the wilderness, tempted by the devil, he went to the cross and suffered the ultimate humiliation. And for three hours on the cross, while the sun was dark, Jesus screamed out over and over again, My God, my God, why have the two of you forsaken me? And then he died and was buried, and then he came to life again. And we moved down this U-shaped movement to humiliation and then up through glorification. And that's what Matthew says. That's what Mark says. And that's what Luke says. So as we said last night, here we are on the day of Pentecost and a bunch of us have been converted and we didn't really know that much about what Jesus was doing. So we go to Peter and say, hey, how can we learn more about this? And Peter turns to Matthew and says, this guy's been keeping notes for the last three years and uh, he's going to start writing tonight. So two weeks after Pentecost, the Gospel of Matthew is in circulation. It's being copied around. Listen, it didn't take any time for Matthew to write his Gospel. Scholars may say otherwise, but they're wrong. Because the Jews were people who demanded a book. All they did was study their scriptures, and they knew full well that if this was a Messiah, there had to be some scriptures, and there are always scriptures right away. And Matthew was going out right away. And Matthew presents Jesus as a new Moses. He speaks all these sermons in Matthew. Now, about 15 years later, Mark comes along, and Mark presents Jesus as a new David. 
a man of action. Immediately going here and casting demons out. Immediately going there and healing the sick. A warrior. Another David. And after about ten more years, then Luke, under Paul's ministry, writes Luke. And Luke presents Jesus as a prophet. Okay? Priest, prophet, and king. Jesus is going here and he's going there. He's traveling here. He's traveling there. You know, the high priest had his ear, thumb, and big toe anointed. Well, the gospel of the ear is Matthew. It's all full of sermons. The gospel of the hand, action, is Mark. The gospel of the foot, Jesus always traveling places, is Luke. And finally, John comes, and John assumes that you have read Matthew. When you study Mark, you have to understand that the reason Mark is shorter than Matthew is because Mark is writing to people who've already got Matthew. Okay? He assumes you know Matthew. Luke assumes you've read Matthew and Mark. And John assumes you've read all three. And now, these first three Gospels show us what Jesus went through for us. But John is writing at a time just before the early church, the apostolic church, was about to undergo its great tribulation, her great tribulation, in the A.D. 60s, when Nero would start burning Christians in Rome, and when the Jews would start persecuting Christians all over Palestine, just before God came and vindicated his saints by destroying their city in A.D. 70. And John writes to show us how Jesus suffered and how we have to suffer too, because we're all going to suffer. So John's perspective is different, and it's equally valid. And John's perspective is not that Jesus humbled himself and came into the world and went through a bunch of humiliation and was glorified. Rather, John's perspective is that Jesus just went through a whole series of glorifications. And every time it looks like he's suffering, he's just advancing in glory. Let's think about this. When Jesus is incarnated into the world, is that a humiliation? Is it a humiliation for God to take on a human body? Not at all. Human beings are the very image of God. And if you make a nice set of clothes and put it on, are you making yourself humble? Are you making yourself look nice? When Jesus comes in and he takes the world upon himself, flesh made out of, you know, earth, air, fire, and water, he takes on a human body, he's not humbling himself. That's an act of adding something even more glorious to himself because human beings are the images of God. If Adam hadn't sinned, we would know that better than we do. Then Jesus spends years as a carpenter building houses. Of course, that's what he came to do, to build a house, which is the church. So it's fitting that he was a carpenter, and as he builds houses and works on these public works and other things, he's making the world a better place. Glorification. Then Jesus enters into his ministry after his baptism. He goes around teaching people. He goes around healing people, revealing his power and his glory. It's a series of glorifications. And Jesus defeats his enemies. Demons show up, he knocks them down. Jews come and question him, he defeats them. Herodians, he defeats them. Sadducees, he defeats them. Pharisees, he defeats them. Jesus beats everybody up who gets in his way. Verbally. Well, he does it with a whip too, doesn't he? He even takes a whip to a bunch of people. Jesus was a carpenter, but the only thing we ever see him making is a whip. Not that sweet Jesus we think about sometimes. This is the tough Jesus. Oh, yeah, Jesus is glorifying himself. But then he's arrested and put on trial and sent to the cross. But in John's gospel, those are not seen as a series of humiliations. In fact, John repeatedly tells us that Jesus said this was going to be an aspect of his glorification. And we're going to take a little quick tour through John to get this established in our mind before we look at the crucifixion itself. In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, 
Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Moses put that bronze serpent up on a pole, and that's a reference to Jesus' crucifixion, but it's said to be a lifting up, an ascension, a way of being put on high so that people can be saved. That very language, lifting up, implies not humiliation, but some type of glorification and enthronement. Then in John, Jesus says over and over again that he is totally in charge of the situation. He's the one who's going to decide when he's going to be arrested. They don't come and capture Jesus and drag him off, put him on trial and crucify him. Not in John. The other Gospels have shown us Jesus submitting to men. In John, Jesus doesn't submit to anybody except the Father. He says that over and over again. He says, I'm not submitting to anybody but the Father. I'm not submitting to Pilate. I'm not submitting to Caiaphas. I'm not submitting to any Roman soldiers. Jesus is totally in charge in John. In John chapter 7, verse 30, it says, They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, but no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They tried to seize Jesus, but his time isn't right, so they can't do it. And then in verse 44, it says, Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. They couldn't do it. He's not submitted to them. They can't do anything to him. In chapter 8, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Jesus determines when that hour is. In chapter 10, verse 39, they were seeking again to seize him, but he eluded their grasp. You can't turn your Bible pages fast enough to keep up with me here. We will get to a place where you can follow, but... If we take the time to let everybody turn to them, we'll be here all night instead of just an hour and a half, which is how long this sermon is going to last. In chapter 8, verses 21 to 28, Jesus says this. He said, therefore, again to them, I'm going away and you shall seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He's talking to the Jews. He says, you guys are all going to die. Therefore, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And Jesus was saying to them, you're from below. I'm from above. You're of this world. I'm not of this world. I said, therefore, to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. He says, I am. That's the name of God from the Old Testament. I am that I am. The power name. So they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? What have I been saying to you guys all along? I had many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. The things that I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They didn't realize he was speaking to them about the Father. Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. When you lift me up. You know, as that stands there in Greek, that could just as well mean when you enthrone me. When you make me your king, as David was lifted up, as Solomon was lifted up, when you lift up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am. You'll know I'm Jehovah. I'm the Yahweh from the Old Testament. I was the one who spoke at Mount Sinai. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak those things as the Father taught me. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is going to be lifted up. In chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, we see Jesus in charge. Chapter 10, 17, and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I'm going to lay down my life. Nobody's going to kill me. I'm going to take it up again. 
No one can take it away from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. In John, Jesus is in charge. In chapter 12, 23 to 25, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what does this glorification mean here in this passage? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, it remains by itself alone. But if it die, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified by dying. I'm going to be glorified by dying. The crucifixion is a glorification of Christ. It is his lifting up. In chapter 12, 27 and 28, now my soul has become troubled. I mean, it's not going to be any fun, but it is a stage of glorification. Now my soul has become troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Huh. For this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father's name is going to be glorified when Jesus is on the cross. The cross is not a humiliation in John. It's a glorification. Both of these perspectives are true. But we're in John tonight, okay? In John. In chapter 12, 31 to 33, Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. That may be Satan. It may be a reference to the high priest, who is, in an official sense, the ruler of the world in the economy of the old creation. Whoever it is, he's going to be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up off the earth, will draw all men to myself. Is that his ascension into heaven? Nope. He was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die. <laughs> Jesus' death while he's on the cross, that's going to be the time when he completely destroys Satan, gets rid of the old world, draws all men to himself, and is glorified. In chapter 13, verses 31-32, right after Jesus sends Judas out, in verse 31, When therefore he gone out, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Jesus says, Right now they're about to come and arrest me. Hey, that's my glorification. They're going to put me on trial. The Father's glorifying me. They're going to nail me up on a cross. The Father's glorifying me. I'm going to die and be put in a tomb. I'm going to be glorified. So the arrest and trial and crucifixion and death of Jesus are glorifications. In fact, Jesus sets them up. In the other Gospels, Judas betrays Jesus. But in John's Gospel, Jesus pretty much sets Judas up. <laughs> he says, verse 26, Jesus therefore answers, this is the one... You know, he says, somebody's going to betray me, and they all say, who is it? So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Jesus is in control of Judas. Jesus is in control of the situation. It's time to be betrayed. Well, he sends Judas out to betray him. Nothing's catching Jesus by surprise. Not in John. Well, after his death in the grave... Well, what was that? His actual death was on the cross when he suffered under the Father's wrath. When he died, he went over into paradise, Abraham's bosom, where the thief 
was going to go. And then he came back and was resurrected. And then he ascended into heaven. And then he was enthroned at the Father's right hand. And then in AD 70, he vindicated himself. He fulfilled all those prophecies he'd made about coming to destroy the city. And he was given his great public vindication in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And he reigns. And someday he'll come again. These are just all stages of glorification. Now, for us to understand this, we have to do a little bit of theology before we go back to God. And that is, humiliation is glorification. And the reason for that is, humility is an attribute of each of the three persons of God. You see, you know, in my tradition, we say, why does God do all things? And it says, for his own glory. That's not quite true. Because the Father never seeks to glorify himself. When you go to the Father, he says, hey, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Then you go to Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, I'm not doing anything except what my Father told me to do. And hey, I'm leaving soon. You don't want me to stay around because the Spirit is coming. And the Spirit is what you really want. So then you go over to the Spirit and the Spirit says, hey, all I'm here to do is call attention to Jesus. So you go back to Jesus and he says, hey, don't look at me. The Father, he's the one. (laughs) Now, the three persons of God, that is the original church. And what are we supposed to do? In lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than himself. The reason for that is because that's how God acts. Each member of the Trinity delights to humble himself to glorify the other two. Do you delight to humble yourself to glorify your spouse? You men, you're supposed to have short hair. And you're not supposed to dress up a whole lot. You can wear a tie. That's it. And you're not supposed to wear a bunch of jewelry. Because a man is supposed to glorify his wife. She has the glorious hair, according to 1 Corinthians. And she can wear jewelry. She can dress up. In beautiful color. That's what the Song of Solomon is all about. The man glorifies his wife. But what does the wife do? Well, she's always praising her husband and talking about how great he is. Isn't that true? (laughs) Well, that's how we're supposed to do it. You know something? When the Bible talks about the bride of Christ, it always speaks of her as beautiful. The new Jerusalem in Revelation is the bride of Christ. Isn't it beautiful? Well, how about Jesus? Is Jesus beautiful? No. He had no form of comeliness that we should desire. Jesus makes us beautiful. So what we want to do is make Him beautiful. It's that mutuality, that one another in one another that we have. And that's why Jesus, in John, John can say that Jesus' humiliation and suffering are glorification. You know, if we compare the first three Gospels, which John assumes you've read and you already know, and you all do, Of course, you all know that Jesus was humiliated on the cross and suffered. So John can build on that. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Judas comes to Jesus in the garden and kisses him and betrays him. As we'll see in a minute, that's not what happens in John. Jesus goes out to meet him. Jesus is in control. In the other Gospels, it explicitly says they laid hands on him and seized him. That's not in John at all. Okay? Jesus goes out, they arrest him, he just goes with them. It doesn't say they laid hands on him and seized him. In the other Gospels, Jesus is silent before Caiaphas. Caiaphas asks him questions, you know, 
Have you said you're the Messiah? Yes. Then they ask him a bunch of other questions, and Jesus won't answer him. In John's Gospel, when Jesus stands before Annas, he talks right back to him and puts him in his place. In the other Gospels, Jesus doesn't say anything to Pilate. Pilate says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, that's right. And that's it. In John's Gospel, Jesus puts Pilate in his place and strikes fear into Pilate's heart. In the other Gospels, we're told that Jesus cried to God the Father on the cross for the three hours of darkness. In John's Gospel, Jesus rules while he is on the cross. And now, this is where it starts to get funny. Because God laughs at the plots of man, and so can we. Now, we're going to start in John 18. That was all preliminary. Amen? Amen. John 18. You may turn there if you wish to follow along. After Jesus has given his last discourse to the disciples and prayed the high priestly prayer, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. I want to make a comment on that. That is a reference back to David when Absalom took over the city of Jerusalem and David was driven out. And if you remember the story, you remember that David moves out of the city and he crosses the brook Kidron and he goes up on the Mount of Olives and into exile. And then when David comes back, that's after Absalom has been defeated and he comes back into the city triumphant. Now Jesus is going forth into the brook Kidron and after he's arrested, what's going to happen? They're going to bring him back into the city. Now, this is under the surface here. But it's very clearly implied that when Jesus comes back into the city, he's coming back in charge. And we're going to see that he is in charge. Now, verse 2 of chapter 18 says, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a Roman cohort, that's a group of Roman soldiers, and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, comes there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and says to them, Whom do you seek? And we didn't take the time to do it, but you'll remember that in John's Gospel, Jesus compares the church to a sheepfold. And he says there are all these sheep inside the fold, and that the good shepherd guards the sheepfold. And the good shepherd goes in and out of the gate, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Well, now think of this situation here. We've got a walled garden here, the Garden of the Olive Press, Gethsemane. The disciples are back in there. Jesus goes out and stands at the gate. Nobody's going to get his disciples. Okay? And Judas doesn't come in there and kiss him, you know, when Jesus is taken by surprise. Uh-uh. Jesus, knowing what's going to happen, completely in charge of the situation, he goes out there and says... Who are you guys looking for? Well, they answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. When therefore he said to them, I am. They all fell back and fell down on the ground. That's not in the other Gospels. Who's in charge here? Jesus or the soldiers? Well, it's obvious who's in charge. Reminds me of the story of the soldiers coming out to get Elijah when all the fire kept coming forth and burning them up. Therefore, he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus and Nazarene. And Jesus said, I just told you I am he. 
If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Okay, he protects the sheep. Let these go their way. That the word might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. So what's happening here? They come up to Jesus and say, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. I am. They all fall down. Get back up. You're looking for Jesus says, hey, you want a piece of me? All right, but let these go. Now, the adjutant of the Roman cohort goes over to the Roman centurion and says, look, the guy just made us all fall down by saying two words. He wants us to let his disciples go. I suggest we let his disciples go. (laughs) And the centurion says, I got a great idea. We're only here for Jesus. Let the disciples go. Well, now Peter is kind of excited about this. Looks like Jesus is really in charge. Simon Peter, having drawn a sword, struck the high priest's slave, chopped off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus, which means king. Kingship of Israel is chopped off here. And Jesus therefore said to Peter, put the sword back into its sheath. The cup that the Father has given me shall not I drink it. Well, see, at that point, the Roman centurion probably was starting to move in on Peter. Then Jesus says, uh, uh, and the centurion says, okay. Jesus puts the ear back on. That's not told us here. That means that Israel is going to be given a chance to repent before the final destruction, before they finally have their ears cut off and become deaf to the word of God. But notice also, the cup that the Father has given me, shall not I drink it? A cup is a sign of kingship. Joseph becomes the cupbearer because it's his silver cup that's put in Benjamin's sack. But the cupbearer serves the king. Nehemiah was cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Okay? And whenever you read in the Bible, many times you'll see kings, and the symbol of the king is that he's sitting, resting enthroned, with a glass of wine in his hand, taking it easy. This is just water here. This is implied to be a kingly thing here, that the Father is serving Jesus a cup. It's also a cup that's going to be painful. But Jesus says, hey, for the joy that's set before me, I'm willing to endure the cross. I'll despise the shame. Well, now what happens? We have another story that's not found in the other Gospels. Verses 12, 13. The Roman cohort and the commander, the Kiliarch, commander of a thousand troops. Oh, they sent a thousand troops out to get Jesus. Well, he's been a commander of a thousand anyway. And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus, and they bound him. They led him to Annas first, for he was in father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, you had to be around 30 at least to be a high priest. So if Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law, Annas is an old guy. In fact, he's the godfather. High priest, he's the godfather. He's Jesus come on in. Verse 19 says, Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Hey, Jesus, hey, what's going on? It's okay. I hear you've been seeing things around the city, claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the Messiah. I don't want to believe these things about you, Jesus. I don't like these stories I'm hearing. I think probably they're exaggerated. What do you say, Jesus? I mean, you can back off. We can settle this thing here now. We don't have to go any further. 
And Jesus answered him and said, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and the temple where all the Jews came together. I spoke nothing in secret. What are you questioning me for? Question those who've heard what I said to them. Behold, those know what I said. Hey, I've been teaching this stuff for three years. You want to know what I believe? Jesus says, ask anybody. I haven't kept it any secret. Well, you know, Annecy looks over one of the thugs and says, So this thug hits Jesus, you know. Hey, you don't talk to the Godfather that way. Show a little respect. What does Jesus do? Oh, he submits to this blow. No, Jesus turns around to the guy that hit him and said, Hey, if I've spoken wrongly, bear witness to the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Hey, if I did something wrong, you can hit me. But I didn't do anything wrong, so what are you hitting me for? Do it again, you're going to die. <laughs> Who's in charge here? Well, at this point, Anna says, Well, you know, the Godfather says there's just no point in doing this. You know, so he sends them over to the consigliere. To Caiaphas. And the other Gospels tell us what Caiaphas does. Caiaphas has this kangaroo court and has these false witnesses come in and bear false witness against Jesus and sentences him to death. In John's Gospel, as we saw last night, Caiaphas is replaced by Simon Peter. And so we move back to Peter, who is betraying Christ. Peter is the high priest of Jesus' kingdom. And he is being Caiaphas on this occasion. But we looked at that last week. And it says that... The Godfather's given up. He sent him to Caiaphas. John passes over that because John knows that we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We've already read them. We already know about all that stuff. Now we go to Pilate. Because the Holy Spirit is inspiring John to tell us some things that he didn't tell Matthew, Mark, and Luke to tell us. It says he goes to Pilate and the Jews try to get Pilate to put him to death. And Pilate does not want to get involved in this. Okay? He was smart. But we'll take it up in verse 33. Pilate therefore entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Now, all of a sudden he's put Pilate on the defensive. He could have said yes or no, but instead he says, Hey, you asking these questions on your own? Or did somebody put this in your ear? And Pilate says, look, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. And I might not have been delivered up to these Jews, but as it is, my kingdom's not of this realm. So Pilate says to him, so you are a king then. And Jesus said, that's right, I am a king. For this I was born, for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Look, all of a sudden, it's Pilate who's on the defensive here. Jesus immediately takes charge of the situation. Now, in the other Gospels, and that perspective is absolutely true, but it's the one we always hear. You know, Jesus is quiet. He submits. Here, Jesus isn't quiet at all. He takes charge of the situation, immediately speaks back to Pilate, puts Pilate on the defensive, and Pilate has to start answering questions. And Jesus is starting to get him all confused, and Pilate's starting to be afraid. Because in a couple of verses, we're going to read that Pilate became even more afraid. Well, in verse 38, then Pilate says to him, what is truth? And when he said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I don't find any guilt in him. You have a custom that I should release somebody for you at Passover. Who do you want me to release for you? You want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore, they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. 
And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him blows in the face. Now, obviously, there's suffering here. But in the context in which this happens in John, it's also an affirmation of Jesus' kingship. They don't mean it that way. But in John's context, it is. Ironically enough, yeah, he is the king. Pilate keeps calling him a king. And even the Roman soldiers have to recognize him as a king in some way. And then Pilate came out again and says to the Jews, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate says to them, Behold the man. When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate says to them, You take him yourselves and crucify him. I don't find any guilt in him. Jews answered him and said, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Pilate's getting afraid. Jesus is in charge. What's going on here? He brings him out. He's trying to get him off the hook. Pilate doesn't want to do this. And Pilate is afraid. It's not Pilate who's judging Jesus. It's Jesus who's judging Pilate. And now that becomes even clearer. Verse 9 Pilate went into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus didn't give him an answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You won't speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you? I have authority to crucify you? He tries to pull out his authority. He's terrified. He's scared of Jesus. He says, Look, i got guns. i got Roman soldiers out here. I can crucify you. You ought to answer me. Jesus says, You wouldn't have any authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me up to you has the greater sin. Oh, now Pilate is terrified. As a result of this, Pilate kept making efforts to release him. This went on for a while. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Now, when the Jews finally hit on this argument, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. Well, Jesus has completely shattered Pilate here. And he is ruling the situation. Now, something even more amazing happens. Pilate therefore heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat him down in the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It's not clear in the Greek whether Pilate sat in the judgment seat or he sat Jesus in the judgment seat. I think he sat Jesus in the judgment seat. He's trying one last time to get these Jews to leave Jesus alone so he doesn't have to go through this because he's scared. The other Gospels tell us that Pilate's wife came to him and said, you better let this Jesus go. Because I had a dream and it was not a friendly dream. So there's a lot of background here behind Pilate. I think he sets Jesus down in the throne. And it was the day of the preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he says to the Jews, behold, your king. They therefore cried out, away with him, away, crucify him. Pilate tries again, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. Boy, that seals their doom. They have no king except the beast. So he then delivered Jesus up to them to be crucified. But Pilate is not finished enthroning Jesus. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And Pilate wrote an inscription also and put it on the cross, and it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. 
Now, all the Gospels tell us this, but John goes into much more detail. Therefore, this inscription many of the Jews read, for in the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was on the Mount of Olives. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. You see, John shows us Jesus enthroned on the cross. And he's enthroned with his foot crushing a skull. What does it say in Genesis 3? It says the serpent will bruise Jesus' heel and Jesus will what? Crush the serpent's head. And you have to see, Jesus is nailed on this tree. The Roman soldiers didn't need to dig holes and put posts in them. The New Testament says Jesus was nailed to a tree. We always symbolize it with a, you know, a cross, but the cross piece is probably all they used. Man, I'm on this tree here in the Mount of Olives, due east of Jerusalem, where you can see the veil being rent. So that's how we know where it was. He's up there, and the other two guys are next to him. And there's a sign over him that says, He's king. He's enthroned. Well, what is this skull? Why is this place called the place of the skull? In Hebrew, Golgotha. Well, the reason for it is because this is where Goliath's skull was put by David. Read that David chopped off Goliath's head and took his skull to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem being a holy city, you don't take a corpse in there. And it was put on the Mount of Olives. And that's where Jesus is crucified. Jesus' foot is trampling down the head of the enemy, Goliath. Goliath of Gath, right? Goliath of Gath. In Hebrew, Goliath Goth. Golgoth. Golgotha. Skull place, Goliath of Gath place. Jesus is crushing the serpent's head symbolically here. So Pilate has enthroned Jesus, and Jesus is totally in charge of the situation. Now, we're not done with this glorification and exaltation of Jesus, this paradoxical exaltation of Christ, because even more happens. The soldiers, therefore, verse 23, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his outer garments and made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic, now, the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, and they said, therefore, to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. That the scripture might be fulfilled, they divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four soldiers, four women. Now, Jesus is crucified stark naked. Now, we never see it that way in paintings because you don't want to paint it that way. Paintings are symbolic. All art is symbolic. All visual art is symbolic. And so Jesus is portrayed with, you know, a strip of cloth around his waist, which is entirely appropriate. But that's not how it was. They wanted to shame him and humiliate him, and they crucified people naked. And that's how he was. But see, the problem is, Jesus wasn't ashamed to be naked. The only reason you and I are ashamed to be naked is because we've got sin of Adam. But Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. And Jesus doesn't have any sin, so it doesn't bother him. Want to make me naked? Okay. No big deal. It would bother me. I'm not going to demonstrate. <laughs> but... <laughs> you got it. But it didn't bother Jesus. Now they're casting lots for his garments. Four soldiers... 
If we start in Genesis and read the whole Bible up to this point, then we know that four is the number of the four corners of the world. And the Romans are the rulers of the world. And we also know from the Old Testament, from reading the Bible forward, that a garment represents a community of people gathered around a king. Aaron's robes of honor and glory, of glory and beauty, had the names of the tribes of Israel on them. So that when Aaron walked around, he was carrying the tribes with him. They were all gathered around him. The Bible tells us that this world is like a vestment, a robe around God. And we are, as a gathered people, the symbol of that is we are the robe around Jesus. And wherever Jesus goes, he carries us. This is standard biblical symbolism. If you don't know about it, too bad, but now you do. This robe, these garments of Jesus represent the entire world. That's why this is an important passage. Roman soldiers, four of them for the four corners of the world, they're taking the world. Okay? The whole world has been taken off of Jesus and it's about to be portioned out to the bad guys. And you know what Jesus is saying? Hey, you can have them because I'm about to start a new creation. I'm about to get new robes. When I'm raised from the dead, you can have these old ones. They're worn out anyway. I was going to give them to goodwill. You guys want them? You can have them. <laughs> because this world is over. A new creation's about to come. You want to cling to the old world and these old clothes that I've been wearing for all these years? Go ahead. You can have them. I'm starting up a new world, a better world. The old world was black and white, two-dimensional on a 12-inch TV screen. New world is in living color on a 65-inch screen that's three-dimensional. You want to live in that old world? Go ahead. You can have it. It's not going to last very long because I'm going to start eradicating it by sending my disciples out to conquer all the nations of the world. Make disciples of all nations. Also, if you want these old leftover pieces of crumbs of the old world, you can have them. I'm starting a new world. And that's where the four women come in. Because we got four women here, and they represent the bride. And that's where the new world starts. That's why women are so important in the resurrection. Jesus appears first to women. Because the woman represents the church. And Jesus, right away, rules on the cross. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother, first of all, we're told about these four women, and immediately it says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He says to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. This is like a king ruling on a throne, making decisions about the members of his kingdom. And it's a little bit more than that, of course. Jesus' mother is Eve, the mother of the seed, and she represents the whole old church. Okay, the old creation, people of God. And Jesus transfers all those people into the church by putting them under John. John is the son. He says son. He calls him son. The son, this new son is going to carry the kingdom forth. The new kingdom. Okay, the new creation. And Jesus transfers the mother, the old creation, into the new creation to be discipled by the new ministers. Jesus is writing from the tree. Maybe you know the hymn of Venantius Fortunatus written in the 5th century. Maybe you don't. But it's a great hymn, okay? The royal banners forward go, the cross shines forth. 
with mystic glow where he as man who gave men breath now dies beneath the yoke of death. Fulfilled is all that David told in true prophetic song of old, how God the nation's king should be, for God is reigning from the tree. It gets even funnier to me to read what happens next. I mean, this is just kind of amazing the way this is written. <laughs> Verse 28 says, After Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I'm thirsty. You know, you get the impression that Jesus has got a little list here that he's going through. Okay. Now, okay, let's see. Cast demon out. Okay. Heal sick. Okay. Preach the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Transfer mother over to John. Okay. All right. Oh, time to say I'm thirsty. Okay, I'm thirsty. Jesus is totally in control of this situation. He says, I'm thirsty. And what do they serve him? They serve him wine. Oh, yeah, it's sour wine on a branch of hyssop. But it's wine what you serve to kings. And now we come to the climax. When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said... It's finished. I've done it. In Greek, this is a great word. Tetelestai. Say that. Tetelestai. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And he died. Now, it says he gave up his own breath. Would any of you like to try that? Here, let's all try it. Right now, will yourself dead. Doesn't work. You don't have any power over death. When death is ready for you, death is going to come and get you. Oh, you can blow your brains out. But you can't just will yourself dead, can you? Try it sometime. You don't need to worry because it's not going to work. You can't will yourself dead. But death had no power over Jesus. If Jesus hadn't given up his own life, he would still be on the cross. Because Jesus couldn't die. He was not subject to death. Now we say Jesus died for our sins. What that means is that he suffered three hours separated from God on the cross. That's his spiritual death. That's the death spoken of. But his physical death, Jesus was in charge of his own death. Jesus is in charge of every situation here. He glorifies himself by giving up his own physical life. He says, okay, hey, it's time to go to paradise. So, gives up his spirit and goes to paradise. Goes to Abraham's bosom and spends some time with Moses and all the Old Testament saints and the thief on the cross who joins him there. And a few days later, he comes up from the grave. Ah, time to go. So he gives up his own breath. His death can't come to him because Jesus is unconquerable. Amen? Amen. Would you stand and pray? Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, thank You that You are a God who laughs at the schemes of men, that no matter what they do to Jesus, they couldn't do anything to Him. He was in charge of the whole situation. And we thank You that this is a sign to us that when You call upon us to suffer, if they arrest us for doing what is right, that we can be like this. This is the picture for us. We thank you that Jesus was triumphant in every phase of his suffering and that he suffered it for us, for the joy set before him. He was willing to go through all of this. We ask that you would bless us now, feed us, 
This Jesus Christ, this resurrected and glorified Christ, by mystically, by the power of your Holy Spirit in ways we don't understand, giving us his body and his blood to make us stronger. We pray these things through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the incomparable and unconquerable one who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, age after age. Amen. 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 Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.